Hi, welcome to episode 6 of Because of the Times. Today I'm joined by Ross Makichi, poet, practitioner, performer, host. Ross is a community director for Vancouver-based Archaia Awareness Center and a host of the Branches of Wisdom podcast. Some of his friends refer to him as a holy man. Together we discuss today's culture, relationships and religion in the context of spirituality. Please tune in. Let's have a conversation. Thank you for listening to Because of the Times. Well, welcome, Ross. Hi, I'm sitting here today with Ross Makichi. Um, he's a poet, performer, host, and practitioner. And I'm going to let him introduce himself. Thank you, Milan. Uh, yeah, so I'm Ross McKeechee, live in Lower Gibsons, and i um, excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, yeah, poet. I've, I've always written since I was a kid. I love to write poetry. I've been working on my first poetry book for my whole life, so eventually it'll come out. <laughs> yeah. And then um, practitioner, uh, foremost a student and practitioner, uh, an aspirant of yoga and tantra, as it is taught to me by my guru, Yogacharini Maitre, who comes from South India. Um, and I work with her to run her foundation, Arkaya Foundation and Arkaya Awareness Center. That's our school. We're a, a not-for-profit here in Canada and in India. And um, we do teacher trainings and programs. And our whole mission is to sort of um, support and contribute to individual and collective healing and evolution of consciousness for yeah, individuals, organizations, uh, and communities. Um, and all of our programs are online now since COVID happened. So uh, we do a teacher training every year. That'll be starting March next year. And um, I also work with private clients doing what I call integrative coaching and yoga healing. Um, so that's kind of the practitioner piece. Performer, I was trained as an actor. I, I thought I was going to be an actor like professionally for a long time. I used to do stand-up comedy. Um, and, um, and then host, I host a podcast for Banyan Books, which is called Branches of Wisdom, where I get to speak to really amazing spiritual teachers and artists and visionaries and that sort of thing. So that's kind of the mix. Yeah, yeah. I've yeah. learned recently about your podcast. Uh, what's, the, what's the purpose of your podcast? Uh, well, it's kind of uh, twofold. One is to promote our bookstore, Banyan Books, which you might know has been an independent bookstore in Vancouver for 52 years now, 53 years, since 1970. Mm. Um, and it's a real hub for people to, to come and gather. And we used to do all kinds of in-store events when I worked in the store there. Um, where we would invite different authors to come and speak for free, and we would do bigger ticketed events. They still do some of those. And then when COVID happened, um, I was no longer working in the store, but their uh, producer, Jacob Steele, asked me if I wanted to do a trial run hosting online events. And so we started doing that. And then because all the authors weren't traveling and promoting their books, they were really excited to come online and speak. So we it just kind of really grew quickly mm -hmm. and so it gives us a chance to a promote the store and which is a great place and the author's work and then also to get out these conversations that um, help people with their own insight and healing and personal development spiritual development 
Yeah, well, that's really cool because otherwise I can't imagine it. you have some pretty big names and authors in your in your lineup. There, I went through the the history of your podcasts and I was like, oh wow, you've talked to some amazing people. Yeah, yeah. So it's all like a silver lining of COVID, I guess. It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. It's uh, for me, career wise, COVID <laughs> put everything online, which made my life a lot better. Yeah. And I know that there's a lot of negative things that happened with COVID for myself included. There was things that I lost as well. But um, in that regard, it was a blessing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So how long have you been doing the, um, the yogi practice? Um, I have been practicing yoga seriously probably since 2007 or 8. Um, and I've been apprenticing with my guru, Yogacharini Maitre, since 2015. So for coming into the ninth year here. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And I have, I have this question that I need to ask you because two people that I talked to about you, they refer to you in the same term. And now I just want to hear your, uh, how you see yourself when you hear that, because to me, it was quite a significant, uh, description of somebody. So two people. And we don't need to use names, sure. but two people refer to you as a holy man. <laughs> and I'm like, I know who that is. This is, this is quite an, quite a, you know, description of somebody. And I'm, I'm pretty skeptical that you would call yourself a holy man. Definitely not. But if you were to just like, you know, tap into why would somebody see you that way? Uh, from your own perspective okay well first of all when people call me that it makes me feel uncomfortable and i know the guys usually it's in jest i yeah. think um uh i do definitely would never consider myself a holy man i think i mean we all have the potential to be holy saintly people yeah and so i'm my aim is to work you know to align with that essence but <laughs> no um uh maybe people would say that because uh because I'm a pretty kind and warm-hearted person. Um, yeah, other than that. That doesn't seem <laughs> enough to, to label somebody as a holy person. No. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, honestly. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, I, I'm very committed to my path, and maybe that's a rare quality that I've kind of I've, I've, um, shaped my life around that. I've made my sadhana and being of service to that work uh, the priority in my life. Yeah. So maybe that, that when people see that dedication, that might be something. And it's something rare. Like you don't see a lot of that in a society. Maybe that's why you stand out with your path. I think that you might called be it true. Sadhana. Sadhana, which what? is like a, a, a spiritual practice. Sat is the highest truth or the highest reality. So it's, it's a practice where we're daily aiming to align with the highest self or the highest reality. Yeah. Okay, yeah. and now let me try to understand what made you do that. Um, and also, <laughs> what was your life like before that? What was my life? Okay. Well, when I look back on my life, it's kind of like, and I think a lot of people would resonate this with this, whether it's been a spiritual, quote unquote, spiritual journey or not for them is there's kind of a number of different lifetimes within your lifetime where you have these kind of major eras that you go through or, and then things really change. Um, so I'll start with what my life was like before okay. and I'll, and I'll try to be as brief as I can. So 
I grew up in Nanaimo on Vancouver Island. Um, I was a very sensitive kid, but then as, you know, as life happens, and I remember having very kind of quote unquote, spiritual, expansive experiences as a child to just out in nature and that kind of thing. I got to spend a lot of time alone out in the woods behind our house and that kind of, kind of thing. So then, you know, you get into your life and your the conditioning of society and friends and family and everything kind of takes over. I became this kind of uh, big rugby player kind of guy you know, like partying and drinking and smoking a lot of pot and, you know, the kind of a classic Nanaimo kind of character, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, but I still did well in school and I was inter- interested in the arts and my parents did a really good job of kind of giving me a, a diverse upbringing. Uh, and then fast forward to when I was in university, just, that's just to give you kind of a sense of mm-hmm. the kind of guy I was. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, University 2007, I was in Burnaby going to BCIT studying marketing and entrepreneurship. And I started really kind of suffering and I, like I couldn't sleep very well. My mind was racing. Oh, wow. <laughs> a squirrel on the yeah, deck. I've never seen him up here before. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so uh, my mind was really racing a lot. Um, I was, yeah, I was suffering and I guess I had a low tolerance for suffering maybe. Um, so I started looking for ways to alleviate that. Mm -hmm. Um, and all credit to my mother who she had had breast cancer when I was, uh, six years old. Uh, and then again, when I was 20, she had it a second time because of that, that really drove her into spiritual practice and healing arts. And she did a lot of work on personal work. Mm -hmm. So I was exposed to that. So I had a reference point and she had given me some books. So I started reading this book by the Dalai Lama called how to see yourself as you really are. And I just started implementing some of the simple practices like walking and breathing meditation when I was walking to and from school. Um, I was, I would practice smiling, these kinds of little things, you know, and I really noticed the benefits. And also at the same time, my girlfriend who I was living with at the time brought some yoga DVDs home. And, um, I had a really tight, sore body from rugby. So that I found it really helpful. And I started quite quickly seeing the deeper benefits of all these practices. Mm -hmm. And then a couple of years later, I started having some very profound, expansive experiences. I would call them where my sense of self, my, my, uh, witness consciousness as you might call it that being able to step back and witness your thoughts your emotions your body as not who you actually are you i was kind of seeing myself as the consciousness behind all of that mm-hmm. and so th- that that happened for quite a number of years i had these very big shifts that were taking place and um i lost like 30 or 40 pounds of physical weight and my interest totally changed. I stopped playing rugby and I started writing more poetry and I got into acting and uh, I started working with people with disabilities and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, and it just kind of went from there. And then I realized at some point I needed a teacher. Like I, I was, I kind of got a big head, I would say, which I think happens to a lot of people. Like in this culture, we're not surrounded by wise elders with a lot of spiritual insight. That's not the way our culture's set up. So 
I didn't have anybody to guide me. Mm-hmm. And I felt I started to kind of get this spiritual ego and I saw that in myself mm. and I thought, okay, I need to get this in check and I need to commit to being of service and I need a teacher. Mm. Uh, and your parents would not play that role in any way. They did bless yeah. their hearts. Yeah. yeah. Like my mom, um, very sweetly <clears throat> gifted me the book titled spiritual bypassing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they, they did their best, but they didn't have, they didn't understand fully what I was going through because mm-hmm. they hadn't been through it themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now what I realize is that I needed to, what they refer to integration, you need to integrate that expansiveness into the mundane human, into the body, into your emotional, mental life and, and, um, humble yourself basically. Okay. Yeah. 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 And then that's when you, uh, came across the school in Vancouver uh, actually, no, I, I, um, uh, I was praying a lot to, for a teacher and to, and to know what my path of service was. My, my long-term relationship ended. I went and worked up north for a while to pay off some debt. And then I came back to Vancouver and I was kind of waiting around to figure out what to do next. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, then my dad called me and said, Hey, do you want to go to India with me and do a volunteer trip project? like with this organization that he knew oh, of. Sounds awesome. Yeah. And I said, okay, well that sounds like service and yeah. India, there's a lot of teachers there, you know? So I yeah. went along and I, I went for three months and when I was there, I, we were at this, we went on a field trip one day to this like little village temple, this historical site. And at lunchtime we were kind of cooling our feet in the river mm-hmm. and, uh, and, uh, I ended, I ended up standing next to this guy who went by the name of Yoga Vinod. And he was a yoga instructor and he had studied in an ashram with who I was later to become my teacher, Yoga Charini Maitre. And when I told him I was from Vancouver, he said, um, oh, you have to meet Maitre. She travels to Canada once a year. She's an amazing teacher. And he had worked with Arkaya in India doing some programs and that kind of thing. So he and I traded emails and then I just forgot about it. Yeah. yeah. And then about six months later, um, uh, I was staying on my, I got back from India and another adventure and that's a long tangent, but I was staying on my friend's couch, my best friend, uh, Joel, his couch and still waiting to figure out what to do next. And we were out for dinner and his girlfriend, Lanny was mad, uh, managing a yoga studio. And she said, Ross, there's this teacher from India who's looking for someone to help her kind of establish her school here and she's looking for like a serious student to kind of apprentice with her and do that. She's like, I keep thinking of you. And it just kind of clicked in right away. I said, Oh, what's her name? And mm-hmm. she said, Yoga Charini Maitre. And, uh, and I just knew at that point, okay, I've got to say yes, whatever mm-hmm. this is, it's obvious that, you know, the universe, the divine is mm-hmm. bringing me something here that, yeah, there is no coincidences. There's no coincidences. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah. Amazing. Yeah. What other forms of spirituality did you expose yourself to? Um, I guess, I guess, uh, growing up our, our house, we weren't religious, but my parents came from a Christian background. They would have been United Church, both of my grandparents, mm-hmm. Scottish heritage and mm-hmm. United Church. Um, so, you know, I, I went to church the odd time. We had a lot of Christian friends. I was homeschooled and there was a big Christian um, uh, cohort of other homeschooled kids. So we, we would you know, we, there was a lot of Christianity around us. We had friends that were from India. We had, 
Um, we didn't have any Buddhist or Jewish friends really in Nanaimo. Uh, but my parents kind of tried, we travel a lot and they tried to take us to different temples and churches and expose us. And then in my own exploration, um, I haven't really explored too much. I've read a lot of books from the different, like I, I really love the Christian mystics and I've read some different books. Um, I've read a little bit about Judaism. I've interviewed a small number of um, Jewish practitioners and teachers. Um, a lot of Buddhism I've explored, but that that's, that's part of the Indian tradition as well. So it's very much the same philosophy as mm -hmm. Yoga and Tantra of India. Mm -hmm. um, you seem like you're a well-read person. You read a lot? I do, yeah. These days I don't read that much other than what I what I read for my podcast. Mm -hmm. I do so much reading for that that I don't... Well, that alone must be a good amount. So. Yeah, it's a lot of reading. Yeah, and yeah. then, so, you expose yourself to all the different ideas and all the different trains of thought, I can imagine. Oh, sorry, sorry, I should just say, yeah. the indigenous wisdom of where we live mm -hmm. is something that has been a great influence on me and I feel lucky my parents uh, tried to connect us with this Nanaimo nation on in Nanaimo when I was a kid and um, I've, I've sweated at different lodges and di wherever I've lived and tried to stay connected with the local medicine and the be in good relationship with the indigenous people so that most people don't think of it as a religion but it is a spiritual path and yeah not an organized religion but yeah, yeah. yeah. Very, so, very much so like a unorganized but yet very also complex and concise in a way right form it's a, of, of spiritual being yeah it's a it's a way of life it's a yeah. their whole culture is centered around yeah acknowledging the way things are which is inherently spiritual yeah yeah and it's uh yeah not something that's been talked about a lot i think we all have like just some rough idea based on whatever we see in the movies or read in the books but we don't really know exactly what it looks like um i got a i got a brief insight from my previous speaker uh about that uh their their practice and how the spirituality and a culture is basically the same thing for them there is not like you can be part of the culture but not be spiritual at the same time which is not true for the western culture at all oh, no. it's, it's way different for for where, where we are yeah. um but having yourself exposed to all the different ideas and ways uh and i ask that probably every single person i talk to so yeah, far because yeah. i'm really interested whether you personally see the commonalities oh yeah i mean in the end the essence of all of the great traditions and spiritual paths is to realize god the self the universe as as a as a living reality for yourself not as an intellectual understanding but to be in direct personal connection and knowledge of that um now how that gets interpreted or misinterpreted or understood at various levels depending on where a person added is at in their evolution that's a different story but i when i look around at the the big religions there of course there's always going to be some outlying very odd cult-like spiritual paths and that kind of thing which mm -hmm. i don't think what is what you're talking about but no probably not yeah <laughs> so i think that goal is the same the way to get there is very different and there are very and there are nuances to the end goal too in terms of 
how they how one embodies that reality and how you're asked to uh, live that reality um, but those are those are just kind of um, what's the word more kind of practical things I think in terms of cultural traditional things that aren't necessarily they don't define that reality is the same whatever whoever and whatever you yeah. are so would you say that uh, I might be saying that wrong Satana Sadhana. Sadhana. Okay. Yeah. So your path and path has this uh, property to itself that it starts somewhere and it goes somewhere. Right. So you have a, some certain vision of where you're going and what's at the end of the path. Do you? Right. I mean, so in yoga, they say like yoga is the journey and the destination. Yeah. Um, it's the I've journey. heard it about, about multiple things. Right. The, the same very same, same thing, phrasing. right? Yeah. yeah, it's the or the it's the journey of the self from yeah. the self to the self. Yeah. Um so it's just a matter of uncovering those layers. That essence is always there. We have to call it in, bring it into our multi-dimensional self. So integrate that that self, that infinite expanse of consciousness which underlies everything, mm -hmm. God, whatever you want to call it. Integrating that at least on the tantric path the aim is to integrate that into our human multidimensional experience so that our mind, our emotions, our energy body, our physical body are integrated and aligned with that higher reality. Mm. So that's where the awareness comes into place. Like yeah. That awareness, the better the awareness or the higher the awareness, the more we see it all coming together as a one wholesome. Yeah, I think so. You could say like the more refined or subtle the awareness mm -hmm. and the more expansive the awareness as well. Yeah. Do you think do you find in your own observations or practice that people um, achieve certain level of awareness and then kind of rest on the laurel and it's yeah. like, oh yeah, I'm there. Yeah, I did I'm that. The most <laughs> okay, tell me about that a little bit. Well, that was when I started getting a big head as a young man, you know, in my twenties, and had these expansive experiences, and then I thought, oh, this is it, I'm there. Mm -hmm. And because I didn't have that guidance to say, hey, you know, this is this is grace you're experiencing, you know, your inner light, your inner guru is awakening, but it might not last. You have to, this is a lifetime's journey. And just because you've had this insight and expansive experience doesn't mean that there's not going to be all of these uh, karmas that aren't going to come up for you to deal with still. Mm -hmm. And that's where the real challenge begins is... Mm -hmm. I know what's possible now. How do I get back to that? Basically, how do I maintain that state? How do I stay in contact with that state? So the Stoics say uh, the the obstacle is the way. Right. Yeah. Um, the the writing I had on my walk is I've done Taekwondo for nearly eighteen years as a practice, and it was always very like athletic oriented and. The spiritual component was there, but it wasn't always very clear to me. However, one of my coaches put on the wall those phrases. And then one of them was that, um, it's a loose translation. Uh, the journey to the goal is the goal, right. right? And I remember that and I was like years ago now. And it's really quite clear in my head that that made me realize that all we do here is just the practice. 
It's all about the practice and that's the goal of being here, not for me to get a black belt or me to be a world champion or something, it's to me to maintain it. And then funny now from the time perspective, that coach, he's now 60, I think it's like 64, still practicing, still see his like performances online, like he has an active Facebook account and he he posts some of his practices and recently he went with his wife to a trip to uh, Zanzibar and he put on his uniform on the beach and he threw like a beautiful kick like completely vertical in the air at the age of 64 and it made me feel like okay yeah I'm not doing that <laughs> my path went the other way so I'm not beating myself up it's like I, I stepped off that path but it's very clear that for him he kind of embodies that being on one path and just right. and that also makes me think that there is more than one path right do you feel like the path that you're on and whatever the goal is that you going towards could be parallel to some other path yes i think so um but like i was saying before the the nuances in terms of uh the cultural tradition involved with it and and in terms of the goal as well like um, for instance, in, in Buddhism, there's the Bodhisattva path where they take a vow to, to liberate all beings before they, you know, uh, are liberated themselves. Mm -hmm. That's a very specific vow that they're taking. And within what, that, what was that meant by that? What's meant by that? So liberation, yeah, like they're there in service to other beings, uh, healing and evolution and liberation from, uh, samsara or from the the cycle of birth and death and birth and death mm -hmm. and the cycle of repetitive patterns over and over again so um, they take that that vow um, in yoga there's I mean there's so many different streams if we're talking about the Indian system and it's a culture that welcomes and accepts all the different paths and traditions Christianity came to India and they say, yeah, put Jesus up on your altar too. He's also a realized being, you know, uh, and he, he really embodies the path of bhakti devotion. Um, and you know, worship of Jesus Christ is like a, is like bhakti yoga where you have, you're worshiping him as the divine and you hold him in your heart as the, uh, conduit to bring you to the highest. Uh, Jesus Christ is the way, right? That's the that's the the idea. And in in the yogic tradition, they also have that. Mm -hmm. You can worship Krishna. You can there's I mean there's hundreds, if not thousands, of gods in this yogic tradition. They're all the same divine, but they're just shown in a different form depending on who you are and how your your different constitution and you know your personality and what you relate to. Does it seem like a common sense to you? Does it seem like common sense to me? Yeah. If you, if you ex have it explained to you properly, instead of just saying, oh, there, it's like, you know, all these different gods, it's so complicated, but it's like, no, no, they're, it's all the same divine. The divine is ultimately formless, but we're giving it form as a way to bridge the gap for the human mind, you know? So, because it, how do we comp comprehend that? It's almost incomprehensible. It can only be directly realized. Uh, mm -hmm. So we need symbols we need sounds, we need all these different things that help us 
to attune with and align with the divine and to cultivate those divine qualities in ourselves. Yeah, and all the different traditions have different ways of doing that. So that's, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, the Christians would disagree with you. Right, right? yeah. Even though the, the, the... Some of them would. Some of them would. Okay, some of them. Yeah. Maybe. I'm not saying no. I don't know right. for a fact. From what I've experienced so far, right. I can say that <laughs> Christian faith would disagree with that statement, as in there is all different ways that lead you to the same thing. Yeah. Like the Jesus, Jesus is the only is way. Is the only way. Right? Yeah. And then so I've heard the reference to the other ways as practicing the false gods. Right. You know? Right. And um, what was my question? I guess, how does that make you feel about the separation of the, of, you know, like the Christians have their way right. and they don't acknowledge any other way as the right way. Right. And then you're coming from a perspective where, yes, Christianity is the way, but also is that and also is that. So, I mean, that. so I, I, this is a good question, but I would say it's always about the practitioner themselves mm-hmm. and how limited is their, how small is their mind? How expansive is their heart? Would Jesus Christ have said that? He said, I am the way. But was he meaning that no other tradition can possibly get you there? Or was he speaking like, I am the divine itself. I am that, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I, I don't know. I, I wish I, I'm going to look it up probably. Yeah. I'll go through the Bible and see if the words that is used is, I am the only way. Yeah. Oh, I am the way. Well, and there's people that have, have, have made the argument that the way the Bible is translated mm-hmm. is it's gone through a number of different languages. Mm-hmm. And when you go back to the original language, which is Aramaic, mm-hmm. and properly understand not just the language, but the cultural context and the mm-hmm. way they used language mm-hmm. and the way that they lived and the symbology and, you know, mm-hmm. the cosmology of that culture that completely changes the way it's translated. Right. Um, Change the teaching too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so I'm not an expert on that, but I've interviewed people that are, and this is what they are saying. In my own experience, there are many, many Christian practitioners that don't hold that belief that Christianity is the only way. They say, Mm -hmm. this is my way. This is, this is what works for me. And this is one way. Um, I think that this, this, idea that Christianity is the only way unfortunately has become like a a big part of the Christian culture for some Mm -hmm. reason. It's part of the Western culture and ideology, the colonial ideology Mm -hmm. that we all have in our hearts and minds and really need to work at dissolving, which is we know best. These savages don't know anything. Mm -hmm. Let's go show them how, how it's done and let's destroy anything that's different or that we don't understand. When so the, the, the the conquer and divide the divide no what's the divide and conquer yeah, divide and conquer is rooted in uh, religious belief, or the religious belief took on that mm-hmm. you know, it's more likely that religion was used for false pretenses and took that on. But who knows? Mm-hmm. It it's it's the heart and mind of the person who's who's practicing and teaching it and how they use it. So uh, there's you know there's you can dress anything up in a spiritual costume and call it spiritual, but we really need on the yogic and tantric path and the Buddhist, we need keen, clear discernment to say, is that really spiritual? Or are you just calling it spiritual? 
is that actually aligned with expansiveness, love, goodness, or is that, you know, you're just, you're, you're putting into a small box, something that should be much more expansive and then labeling it as spiritual. Mm. Yeah. So in that, in, in terms of that, would you say that the cultural identity that, um, is present in society nowadays, or is there lack of it? Do we have a cultural identity in the Western world as much as say in, in Hindu people do in India or, or um, I don't know Japanese or Chinese cultures or or any other culture? Right. It's pretty like, you know, if you go to Japan, you know you're in Japan. Yeah. Right. If you go yeah. to Canada, you might as well be in the United States. Yeah. You know, it's not the same kind of integrity. I agree with yeah. you. I agree, and I think if you just look at how many people in our quote unquote culture or our society are looking to other places mm -hmm. to find some sense of meaning, some sense of a way of life that makes sense, that's healthy, that's communal, that's connected with nature, that celebrates food and what it actually means to be human. You know, uh, like all of us are certain we are in need of that. Um, I think that's also, it's the, it's the curse and the gift of Western culture because we don't have it. We're actually really open to, we, or we should be, and a lot of us are becoming more that way, welcoming in and trying to learn from other cultures. And I think what's happening is we're, we've got this amazing melting pot of, of different cultures that are coming together. And if we can find a way to cohesively celebrate those, take what's good from them and then also have a society that functions well um, with rules that we can agree on that are, you know, that are, that are aligned with nature. Mm -hmm. um, Do you think that melting pot is a better way to be? I, I kind of, I'm kind of exploring the idea of it and then I'm not quite clear on the fact that, you know, yeah, all the cultures coming together and especially like North America is like a big melting pot of different cultures. And say if you go to London and you live in London for a while, you notice that there's all different cultures just brought into one city and then you experience everything at the same time. And the result of it is no culture, mm, you know, like right. I can't really define within myself what is English culture. You know, because of the, the whole mix of all the cultures brought into the, 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 the play, right? And obviously, I'm an outsider. I'm not an English person. But I have a similar feeling in North America that it's like a massive blend of everything. And yeah. there is no actual cultural identity. People come and say, I'm American. I'm Canadian. What does Canadian, to be Canadian, mean, actually, you know? So whether the the melting pot of cultures is great for us or is it the way for us to kind of be a little bit too lost if we had more clear path of this is our culture and this is what i subscribe to this is my way to go and makes me more clear and not so anxious and depressed all the time yeah yeah which one well i i so i think it's a it's a paradox it's both mm -hmm. i think um Here's the downside of those traditional cultures. People leave those places and come to the West because they want to escape the oppressiveness, mm -hmm. the dogma of those cultures that are so old, so entrenched in their way of life that sometimes the purpose behind that culture can get lost. Mm. Um, 
So they come here where it's, oh, everybody does whatever they want. It's a free-for-all. There is no culture. Mm-hmm. And yet there, you can find people from India celebrating their culture while living in a, a society where there, there is a more um, liberal kind of openness. So that's the benefit, I think, of the Western culture. The downside is what you're saying. It's kind of loosey-goosey. Nobody really has a, a strong identity about it. It's people from different places trying to identify with where they came from instead of saying this is the culture where we are. So, I mean, it's an experiment, right? We're, we're young here. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, the indigenous people had a culture, mm-hmm. have a culture that they're trying to heal and rebuild. Mm-hmm. And we need to, all of us, I think, be, be allies for that and, and be a part of that because that's going to help us. Mm-hmm. It's the culture that was that came from the land here. Mm-hmm. That's what culture is. It's it, the language, the culture, the food, the way of life, the way of connecting to the divine are rooted in the place. And so we have to find a culture that honors all of the world cultures that are here, honors the indigenous culture and finds a way to integrate it together somehow. And I think that's kind of what's, I mean, it's unavoidable. It's either that or, uh, I don't know, Armageddon, but whatever. <laughs> Have you heard the term of the the Great Awakening? I've heard it, yeah. It's been it kind of it's been kinda emphasized more since the beginning of COVID and how the, the world's kinda changed a lot with, yeah. with that event. Um so you have. Yeah, I've heard it. In yeah. certain circles it's it's been like it's like a huge huge term. Like the world is going through the Great Awakening. You know, and whether I personally go through awakening or not, I'm part of that movement, right. regardless. Right. On the other ter- on the other side, I think that on the opposite spectrum of it, and it's just my observation. These are not my beliefs whatsoever. I just observe that there is this whole other side of movement, and then it's it's described as wokeism. Wokeism, right? <laughs> have you heard of that? Yeah. Yeah. So, do do you have any thoughts, feelings about this? Well, it's hard to say. Other than that, it's creates a divide obviously <laughs> well i don't know about that I, I i mean the wokeism creates a divide well the fact that there is those two kind of movements you know oh. and they are associated politically in a way which is unfortunate but i feel like it, it's a little bit of a like a made up made up terms to substitute for the fact that there is no actual cultural identity <laughs> right, right yeah. you know yeah 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 yeah, and, I, and whether it's actually true, I don't know. People mm-hmm. people say like it's the age of Aquarius and all this stuff in the in the what the ancient rishis, the ancient seers and sages of of India said, they laid out these epochs, these like hundreds of thousands of years, and they say yeah. we're in the worst one right now. Yeah, the Kali Yuga, mm-hmm. which is like the time of the false guru and the time of the most spiritual disconnection and destruction of nature. However, I, my understanding, I don't know if it's true, is that there, they also predicted there was some like small golden age within that period. So, you know, people have different ideas about what's going on collectively. Um, over, I mean, in the end, the great scheme of the universal unfolding, I mean, everything's okay when you look at that meta view. And yeah, mm-hmm. sure, everything's awakening and you know, the universal consciousness is awakening through the earth and through human beings. 
where we're at in that progression, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. Because I, I could argue either side easily in a debate, looking around the world, seeing all the war and destruction and division, and then all the beautiful things that are happening too, which you don't hear as much about. In the Why news. is that? That you don't hear as much about? Why are we perpetuating this, all the bad stuff that's happening in the world and not really paying attention that much? There is like, even on Instagram, you have channels like a Good, good News Movement. Right. And it's the only channel that like, I know of that's dedicated to to kind of spreading the good news about what's happening, yeah. right? But you really need to want to find it to get it, yeah. whereas all the bad stuff that's happening in the world is just right there. You just have to turn on your TV, you know, turn on the computer, and it's right there. It's like, oh, horrible things are going on. Yeah. You know? Well, we're adrenaline junkies. So and it's just because what we re- react to and respond to best? I, that's part of it. So I think the neuroscience behind it is, is, is a good thing to understand. Um, the the money behind it is a good thing to understand why the media decides to to focus on certain things there's i mean the money's obviously part of it mm. um what the reasons like how that um influences people the choices that they make in terms of purchasing and how they live their life when people are scared and small they're easier to control of course everybody knows that mm. i don't i don't think that it's all about that I think some of it's just about ratings and media company money. Some of it's probably about control and manipulation. Some of it's about, this is what gets people's attention because of our neuroscience. Some of it's about social media algorithms. Mm. You know, there's like, it's, yeah. I think the biggest thing we're lacking these days is the ability to have nuanced conversations, uh, which means, yeah, let's be able to look at all these different angles instead of making black and white sweeping statements. Let's listen to each other. Let's, Let's talk about the subtleties of it and what motivates things. And yeah, there's different pieces at play. It's not just this or just that. I find myself in those situations when somebody says something and I wish I could just use names, but <laughs> let's just be impersonal. Like sure, that. sure. Somebody say something and I can sense that they're very close to the other way of seeing the very same thing so I just drop the conversation and not follow through I find that very unfortunate yeah but at the same time it kind of hints that the ability to think critically nowadays is not that common and obviously there's a lot of people that are able to think critically and finally people who are not able to think critically will describe themselves as critical thinkers and so it's a very, very confusing and fragile time. So the ability to have that conversation is definitely, definitely uh, necessary. I think that's an answer to your question that we had before we recorded that. That's one of the reasons I wanted to have those conversations because I can, even in our small community that we have here, a few thousand people, the, the diversity of different backgrounds is quite huge. And to expose that is a great way. I mean, this is a, my way of doing it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Hats off to you, Milan. It's excellent. I think it's really great. Yeah. And you know, the other thing is um, to be able to have those conversations. Some people intellectually, we want to, but our nervous systems are wired in such a way. Our emotional trauma is such that we're unable to get past it to have those conversations. A lot of us are, you know, we're, we're, we're wounded and we are in fight or flight a lot of the time. So I think having compassion for each other is like, okay, we don't have to have this conversation. Can we listen? Just listen. I don't have to give my input. I I find it um, 
if we can just listen to each other. So if, if you're having a conversation with someone that isn't able to hear your point of view, are you able to hold space for that mm-hmm. and let them rant a bit, get it off their chest? When people are lonely. They feel like they're unheard. Mm-hmm. Um, they're scared. Uh, and it comes off in sometimes aggressive ways, but that's what's under it. Mm. Yeah, that's a great point. Great way to look at it. Resonates with me for sure. Um, you said you were in a long relationship before you stepped on Sardana? Yeah, I, w- I was, yeah. How long was that? Uh, 11 years. 11 yeah, years. We were high school sweethearts. Yeah. yeah. We got engaged and then ended up calling it off. And we still stayed together a year or two after that. And then kind of went in separate directions. It was That was a hard one for me to let go of because my... I didn't realize how much of my identity had formed around being in that relationship. You know, when you start when you're 16 or 17 to 28. Mm. Yeah. So I've listened to this one talk of uh, Matt Cans. I saw that oh, you yeah. talked to him. On yeah, the yeah. We've had him on a couple He's times. Like a super interesting guy. Um, he talks about the Twin Fires. Oh, Twin Flames. Yeah, Twin yeah. Twin Flames. Yeah, yeah. Uh, does that resonate with you, that way of looking at things? I've That's... definitely experienced what you could call twin flames. Yeah. yeah, where you're just, you're there, you're kind of burning through patterns and karma together and it's very um, passionate or challenging, but you kind of get enmeshed and you kind of you go through with something very intense and then, ha, ah, okay, it's yeah. finally done. Yeah, well, that's what he presents in this talk that once you recognize that, and you see on the different levels and paths and you're not on the same level of awareness and stuff, you should definitely step away mm-hmm. from the relationship. Um, the way he talks about it is very convincing and very resonating. I think a lot of people will resonate with the same way, even if they understand it in their own perception. But I'm, I'm skeptical in, in, a, in a way that that is true. I feel like following that trait of um the obstacle is the way to make you and every, everything that you experience is a lesson you can always kind of refer back to that and every obstacle that you encounter with your partner is just a lesson for you to become a better person so you're asking me if i resonate with that yeah yeah i mean you anything in life you can look at that right i think I, those those teachings are are helpful to a point they become detrimental when people get stuck on them and they're always trying to box something in or they have this concept of what it is. Twin flames is something that's there to help us understand a situation we might be in, to help us either stay in it and navigate it to create more harmony or to create more harmony by parting ways. Mm. Um, I, ha- I do have a point. Well, I want to finish. Sure, sure. Sorry, yeah, there yeah. is a point to what I'm trying to Sure, sure. Yeah, okay, yeah. okay, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of going towards the whole relationship yeah. thing because it seems like you're not in a relationship right now. I am. You I are. am. It's a new... Okay. Oh, it's We're about three months in. Okay. But it's it's fresh. But Okay. Yeah. But you haven't been since the... I've had one? some... I've had some... No, no, I have. That ended in... Okay. That one ended okay. in 2013. Mm-hmm. And I've had... I took... I had about five years where I just stayed, stuck to myself. Mm-hmm. And then I've had a few shorter relationships since then. Mm, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what you, how do you see your uh, path, your own path that you're at? Yeah. And and where is the place of a relationship on that path? Okay, so in the on the the path that I'm on, 
the tantric path, the householder path where you're in the world, um, everything is embraced as part of your sadhana. Mm -hmm. So it's how to, how to elevate or expand. Tantra is the two root words, tanoti and triati, which means to expand and liberate. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to expand and refine everything that we do in our life. And everything is seen as a lesson and a way we're working through our karma. We're working through our internal patterns in relationship to everything in the world, not just our intimate relationship. Mm -hmm. Of course, the intimate relationship is a key piece of that. And one of the core principles is that it's the, maybe the most important decision you make in your life is who you tie yourself to. Um, because you take on and they take on all of your karma. If you sleep in the same bed with somebody, your psychic, emotional, energetic life is intimately entwined. So you're influencing each other profoundly every day. And you can influence each other into more love and expansiveness and harmony, or you can influence each other into disharmony, chaos, conflict, all those things, right? Mm. So that is a really, really important thing. And um, I've learned through experience through different relationships. Um, you know, I've, I've worked through karmas. Some, and we also have these karmic debts, you might say, with people to work through. So I, most of the past relationships, you could call them twin flames. Or you could just say, I had karma with those people to work through. Mm. Um, something that needed to be resolved. either, And you can look at it as it was just something to resolve in myself. And that person helped me do it. Or you can say, together we had to resolve something. However you want to look at it. Mm. Yeah. Do you look at the global, not even global, but like say, you know, community and then the larger community on the global community, your significance of your life and the significance of the relationship that you're in right now, for example, to the global or local community's uh, aspect of it, or its health? Like, um, so, like, does your relationship per se, like your personal relationship with somebody, yeah, does it have significance for the state of this, the health of the society in the world? Oh yeah, I think so. I mean, we're, we are always influencing and being influenced. There's all, we're, it's an interconnected web of life, right? So yeah, whatever I do in any relationship influences the whole and the whole is influencing me. But I think to kind of zone, hone in a little bit more on what you're saying, um, Are you getting to the like to how how the the state of relationships in the present time and what that says about society? Is that what you're scratching at, kind of? I'm kind of going to a point where I I personally see family unit as a this building block of right. a healthy society. Right. And obviously, family starts with relationship of two people. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that's kind of where I'm getting. Yeah. Yeah. I thought. Mm -hmm. Okay. So. Yeah, I think. I mean. Just to be clear, my perspective is that I respect everybody's choices about how they make that family unit. What's important to me in a family unit is that it's healthy. Mm -hmm. That means there's emotional safety, physical safety, support, um, good role modeling, and the, you know, the children are well taken care of and have access to the things that they need. Um, whether it's, whether it's gay or trans or any of that kind of stuff, to me, 
I, I don't care as long as that's a healthy relationship and environment for the kids. Now, there's arguments, you know, for what the, that kind of modeling does to a child's psyche and, you know, going forward, how that impacts them. And even in Tantra, they're, they're, you could debate and talk about the nuances of the energetic body and the polarity that that creates in the child because of the polarity between a man and a woman versus a woman and a woman or a man and a man. There's so many nuances to it. Mm-hmm. But I think the main thing is we do need to love and accept all the different forms of expression and the ways that those family units come together and just focus on how do we create healthy family units? What are the building blocks of healthy family units and relationships, regardless of, you know, what it looks like on the surface in terms of, you know, Mm. um, and in terms of my relationship, just the, you know, couples, I, I'm concerned a little bit about dating apps and what's that, how people are using them. Mm -hmm. The technology, just like social media or any technology, how we use it is what matters. It's just like religion. How are we using it? You know, it's the quality of the person using it that defines its value. Um, I see a lot of, you know, people just sleeping around, lack of commitment, disrespect. Um, You know, we live in a pornographied culture. I don't even know if that's a word pornographied, but sounds accurate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's kind of the elephant in the room in our society. I think is that everything is influenced by porn. I've read somewhere a statistic and I don't know the exact number, but there's a large percentage of the global data, uh, traffic. That's just porn. Yeah. Like it's staggering. Yeah. I'm not surprised. I mean, sex is such a powerful force. Mm-hmm. And when it's readily accessible in your pocket at any time of day and you're 16 years old, boy, I mean, you know, when I, I was, I was into porn from, you know, we got a computer when I was maybe 12 or 13, me and my brother figured it out pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Of course, my dad mm-hmm. saw the history and yelled at us a few mm-hmm. times, but yeah. until, you know, my early thirties, probably I, there was a, there was a, as I was doing my sadhana, there was like, these things start to fall away, but, and I started to see the darkness behind it. There's, there's, we have a responsibility to, um, where we put our attention gives things energy. And when we're putting our attention on porn, we have to understand the impact it's having on the people involved. And it's known that most of the women involved in pornography are, you know, vulnerable mm-hmm. to say the least. Most of them are very vulnerable, have traumatic backgrounds. They're not treated well. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of darkness in that industry. And I experienced it, the psychic effects of that on myself as, as my awareness got more refined through sadhana. To, it came to the point where, my God, I don't even want to go near that. It's gross. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't judge people that go there. It's a, such a strong impulse. <clears throat> but for people to consider what they're contributing to and how it's affecting them in subtle ways that they might not be aware of, how they're losing energy, how they're feeding something that then starts to feed on them, just like any addiction. Why is there so much, so, so little talk about this? We talk so much about stuff that's completely irrelevant. In a, in, as a society and then porn seems to be just kind of on a like you say like this elephant in the room 
I think because there's what I would call a dark arousal about it. You know it, there's something off about it, but we're also very aroused. You know, people don't want to, to acknowledge that there's something off about it because they like it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they feed on it in some way or it feeds on them in some way. And if you look at our pop culture, it's, you know, going more and more to very, very sexualized, more and more reality shows. Um, like, you know, we were watching one the other day, me and the woman I'm dating, mm-hmm. and they've got cameras in their room. Mm-hmm. They're, they know they're on camera and they're, in, you know, mm-hmm. having sex. Mm-hmm. Of course, it gets blurred out and everything, mm-hmm. but they don't seem to have a problem with that. Mm-hmm. Um, now there's money. There's money. Mm-hmm. And maybe the other part of it is, you know, like the prudishness of the, you know, we are at this colonial culture here is a Christian, comes from a Christian thing. So sex is very taboo. You're not supposed to talk about it. Mm-hmm. it just goes behind closed doors and then gets warped and misused and, you know. Oh, okay. That's a great angle to look at. It's yeah. not the same for like the tantric culture. It seems like sex is just one of the forces explored yeah now it's become over sexualized mm-hmm. um, as my teacher would say you know the way tantra is approached in the west is like and in india in a different way um is like having a jet airplane and never taking it off the runway you're just circling around and around on the runway dabbling around in sex and thinking that's tantra mm-hmm Sex is one element of Tantra. It's a very powerful force that we can work with and transmute into our own expansion. And everything is embraced, talked about, contemplated. You look at the energetics of it and how is it impacting me? Is this helping uplift me or is it bringing me down? How do I engage in sex in a way that gives me energy, uplifts me without becoming addictive? Um, All these things. And some people get to a point where they choose to abstain from sex. It's a very high state and not recommended for someone like the danger is repression, which leads to all kinds of warped behaviors, as we've seen in every religious organization, including yogic and tantric traditions where there's abuse. Is there sex without lust? Is there ever sex without lust? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, You know, I'll give you a little background why I'm asking this. A few years ago, I kind of, I don't know, it's like those like little epiphanies that you have, like little light bulb moment. And I figured something that is not very talked about, but it's a common knowledge to an extent, is the seven deadly sins. Right. Lust being one of them. Yeah. And I've come to like think that there is sex that's rooted in lust and there's sex that's rooted in love, uh, and it's not the same thing. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Yeah. And therefore, the lust-rooted sex is something that one should abstain from. And then recently, I've been exposed to this idea. It's a very, very not talked about in, in Christian church, but it's a Christian concept of a veil of Jezebel. A veil you, of Jezebel. Have you heard about that? No. Oh, I'm encouraging you to explore that okay. further. The veil of Jezebel is this demon that could affect both men and women, but it refers to the biblical character of the prince of Jezebel, who was who was using lust and sex to gain power. Uh-huh. And so, the, some some Christian teachers talk about it openly. You can look it up. There's there's quite a few people that that do 
talk about it. And they say that a lot of Christian preachers stay away from that subject too. Like they don't really touch on it at all. And it's an important Christian teaching that people should be aware of. And it seems to be like, like this thing about lust. And then if you tie it together with how pornography is just prevalent online, especially it's everywhere, right? And how we sort of subscribe to it, right? Uh, it's rooted in that sinful way of being, right? If you look at it from a Christian standpoint. But my, my uh, intellectual guess says in a tantric way, uh, it would be also disapproved of. I don't know if that's so true. so yeah i mean here's the thing about the tantric path it's it's about the practitioner taking responsibility for contemplating their own life mm -hmm. it's not an outside in enforcement so it's it's up to the practitioner in collaboration with their sangha their spiritual community and their teacher their guru because it's very important to have people to bounce it off and who are sharing their perspective because we have blind spots but it's on you to ask and be open to that. There's nobody who's going to enforce it or say you're a sinner. But um, the perspective is, is it bringing you towards self-realization? Is it bringing you towards love and harmony and goodness? Is it something that has no negative impact or does any damage to yourself or others? There's all these different things to contemplate in, in Ashtanga yoga, which is the eight limbs of yoga, mm. which is what is put forward. The first time it was ever written down was by Patanjali in the yoga sutras. And, um, there's the first two limbs are yama, niyama. There's five yama, five niyama. So there's 10, but they're not like 10 commandments. They're 10 points of contemplation that we're constantly contemplating. The first one, the first yama, the yama are conscious restraints, things that we deliberately kind of have boundaries around. The first one is ahimsa or non-violence or non-harm. Mm -hmm. So we're contemplating everything from our thoughts, our emotions, our words, our actions. Um, are they causing harm to myself or others? Or am I allowing others to cause harm to me or others to cause harm to others? So we're looking at it in this full spectrum way. So you could contemplate sex from the point of view of ahimsa saying, is this causing harm to anybody in any way? Mm -hmm. I would put forward that if you're supporting pornography on a, in some way, you're contributing to harm to some of the people involved and possibly in a subtle way, causing harm to yourself because you are often avoiding using it as an escape from other parts of your life. It might damage your relationships. It might damage your perspective on sex in a healthy way with your partner where you might want to engage in more violent sex or abusive sex or, you know, those kinds of things. So there's all kinds of so many different nuances to contemplate. Um, there's the, the fourth yama is called brahmacharya, which is usually translated as celibacy. Mm. In a tantric way of looking at it, or the way my teacher defines it, it's saying Brahma is is the highest, the divine. It's the creative principle of the universe. Um, acharya is to act in alignment with. So am I, is my sexual life acting in alignment with the highest? For me, is it acting in alignment with the highest reality? So it's not saying no sex, it's saying, like you're saying, is it lustful or damaging sex? 
energy loss or is it a deepening of intimacy with somebody? Is it an expression of our love together? Is it a union and a celebration of something that uplifts us and helps us to feel more connected? Mm, so it could be used as a tool. Yeah. Mm, I, I, I kind of, I don't know what resonates with me. Like I, I see what you're saying totally, but at the same time I'm thinking perhaps it's a, just an expression of where you are right now with the partner more so than the tool to use to deepen your connection or you think it's both ways i think both yeah 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 no i wasn't meaning that as like a this is only it no 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 yeah. not the only one yeah just just one of the ways yeah uh-huh yeah okay like like the way personally the way i look at it is sex can be used as a couple with not like oh let's use this tool right now it happens very spontaneously organically but it can be a way of connecting after an argument for some people it mm-hmm. helps them some people words don't help them they want to feel their partner close to them mm-hmm. so sometimes sex gives them that yeah um it can be like oh we just gave each other a massage and we're feeling so close and then this spontaneously happens so it's mm-hmm. an expression of like a deepening connection and intimacy together uh sometimes it is lost but in in the tantric perspective, you you want it to be in a safe container with a committed partner, where um, yeah, it is just less. But okay, at least I'm I'm acknowledging that I'm owning it. Let's let's have some lustful sex together, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then after that, we'll tell you know we'll hold each other, we'll love each other, we treat each other well and with respect. Mm. It's interesting, yeah. If you can have a lustful sex that's loving, uh, considering lust is considered a sin. Yeah, right. So why is lust a sin is the question. Yeah. I think we ought to get under that the, the sin. Like, why? what does sin mean? Mm. And why was it labeled as a sin? Um, and, yeah, get into the nuance of it. The corruptive, the corrupt, the corruptive force of it. Yeah. Like, it's easy just to step off the path because of the lust. Yeah. Present. Yeah. Something forbidden. I like the law of diminishing returns. This is something we talk about in our school a lot is um, the more you engage in something to a point, it gives you energy and it, and it uplifts you. And then there's a, but there's a max kind of point. And then after that, the return that you get on investment goes down and down and down. So I think you could say the same thing with sex too, to a certain degree as with any substance, right? It's like, okay, I, I smoke pot or I have a beer in the right context, in the right mood. Okay, it's fun. It's very little impact on me long-term. You know, I really savor it and enjoy the experience. If it becomes chronic and habitual, I have to drink more to get drunk. I have to smoke more to get high. The payoff gets less and less. And that's like the the saying, uh, I think it's a Buddhist Zen saying or something. It's like, the man drinks the first two glasses of wine, the third glass drinks the man, Mm. you know, like we're feeding on something and then it starts feeding on us at some point. Mm. What do you drink? Um, uh, you know, I had a glass of wine last night with my girlfriend. Mm -hmm. I've had that. We bought that bottle of wine for like a date night, special dinner close to like a month ago. Mm-hmm. And we had one glass each that evening, a rare occasion. And then, you know, I was like, we better finish this or it's going to go off. 
So last night we, you know, I had a small glass of two glasses. Yeah. So, you know, in the right mood, I I think alcohol is okay, Mm -hmm. but I, I had to abstain from it for quite a long time to work through my old, uh, habits with it. Yeah. And then I was able to come back to it with a, from a different place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you have any other, uh, habits that are, you would not want to have? Well, I, I don't smoke pot anymore. Uh, there'd be the very, very odd time that it might be around and I might have a little puff or something like that. Um, but I, it's, it's something that, um, if the, if you, if it's the mood of the, if you find yourself in a situation and that's the mood of the situation and in moderation, making a conscious choice. Okay. Um, I grew up smoking pot chronically, habitually, Mm -hmm. you know, for a very long time. And then, you know, as my practice went on, it's not a moral thing. It's just, how is this impacting my nervous system? Mm -hmm. How is this impacting my consciousness? Is it serving my sadhana? It wasn't anymore. Mm -hmm. So it kind of fell away quite naturally. I just didn't really want it anymore. Mm. Have you exposed yourself to any of the like, uh, plant ceremonies, plant medicines? Um, I have never done ayahuasca. I've never felt a call. And my understanding is that mother ayahuasca like calls you, if, mm-hmm. you know, and I haven't had that call. Mm-hmm. Um, in my growing up years, I experimented a lot with uh, psilocybin mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had some very profound experiences, even though I didn't do it in a good way. You know, mm-hmm. it was more like just recreational party kind of thing. Yeah, I still found myself having very what you might call like emptiness experiences, just feeling completely open and one with everything in the environment. And there was no, I was boundaryless. Mm-hmm. I felt, had experiences of communicating with plants and trees and experiencing the aliveness of everything, the consciousness mm-hmm. of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I definitely see the value in those things. Like psychedelics per se. Yeah, I can yeah. see the value. Again, it's, you know, being mindful of the law of diminishing returns being aware of, you know, the still there's a need, no matter what experience you have with that health of that medicine, whatever gateway it opens, we still have to do the work to make that a sober living reality for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't avoid that. So there is a yogic principle, like you shouldn't steal your experiences, mm-hmm. which means like, you know, if you use these helpers in a way, you haven't earned the insight that it gives you. It's like a shortcut. So you still have to, you'll end up having to earn it anyways. You can still remember the insight, but is it, am I living in that knowledge right now? Is it a reality for me right now? No, I have to keep working at my sadhana in order to actually get there and sustain it. But it could be helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I I believe that the psychedelic experiences, they help you kind of open your mind to certain ideas that you wouldn't have otherwise. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. I, I don't, I don't disagree with that at all. I agree with it a hundred percent. It's just a matter of just being mindful of the nuances of what's required after what your goal or, or your aim is with it. And then, um, also understanding how it impacts your, your system afterwards, you know, like if you put a substance in your body, it, it will, affect there's other it will do things to you Mm -hmm. so just being cautious i think caution and using them in a skillful way and these there's traditions around them for a reason because they understood how to work with these medicines so having a respect and protecting yourself 
the last time I did psilocybin mushrooms, I didn't do it in a good way. Mm-hmm. And you're opening your, your astral field to the astral plane where there's anything can come at you. There's all kinds of things, energies and beings and subtle things. And uh, I had an energy come in and stick onto the right side of me. And it was there for a few years. It took a lot of work. It was painful, very painful. And um, it took me a few years to clear that out of my system. Yeah. So just being aware and of the of the cautions and doing it in a good way is what I would always encourage people. Yeah. 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 Cool. There's uh, this, um, like an annual event now. I think this year it was held in Colorado and it revolves all about the practice of the psychedelics. And it very much comes from like a secular way. It's not rooted in a lot of spirituality, although I'm sure there's a lot of people that are connected to the spiritual way of living there. And it's a huge event. It's like, I think five or six days long and there's like hundreds of speakers and there's like, you can try different kind of drugs and stuff and have those like um, guided usage, not even ceremonies, but just guided treatments i'd say people right. call them right yeah right so i've i see around me without even trying to look that the presence of psychedelic drugs in a society is is increasing the use of it and i think it's more of that treatment wise not even as a party drug because to use psychedelics as a party drugs is kind of tricky Um, but the the awareness around this as a medicine is increasing like from the 60s and 70s when it was very big and then it was demonized and illegalized and it's still like a class one drug right and it's not actually legal but the use of it is becoming more and more um, common in a society people find some refuge in that like it's becoming this another thing yeah Hmm. which is i think i I i'll say this i think it's great but we have to we can't just take it at face value Mm -hmm. the um commodification of these things just like any spiritual practice or path and the um uh what's the word spec making it spectacular Mm. you know uh like people are looking for quick shortcuts in their spiritual life yeah they it's not a thing. No. It's not a thing. No. Cool. Yeah. Ross, thank you very much for talking to me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Milan. This that is really went, cool what you're doing. Yeah, that was that went by so quick today. Yeah, how long talking are we talking? For? That's like an hour and a bit already, I think. Okay. Hour 13. Like awesome. All the money. Yeah, hey. perfect. Thanks so much. Thank you. Yeah, I hope to uh, experience more talking with you soon. Likewise. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode. Please spare a moment and go to Spotify and rate my show. Also, if you have any feedback and thoughts, please share it with me. I always do appreciate when my listeners reach out. Thanks so much.